Hi, my name is Aaron McManus, and you are listening to the Battle Ready Podcast. I'm here with my dad, Erwin. It's so good to be here with you today, buddy. And you were at a special place this week. You were at TED. I was up. I was up in Monterey for a few days at the TED conference. It's been a few years since I've been, but I was really excited to be back. And to talk to us a little bit about TED and what it is, most of you know TED Talks. Yeah, of course, TED stands for Technology Entertainment Design. Of course. <laughs> and um, I've been probably to about 20 different TED conferences both in the U.S. and across the world. So Over the last like 15 years, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe okay. 20. And Before they were releasing the talks. Right, right. Uh, in Monterey before it went public and before it started traveling. And yeah, so I was one of the Tedsters. Yeah. And, uh, and, and frankly, I think the first five years that I went, it was life-changing for me and, and really invigorating. And I would always feel as if I... Um, I gained so much, uh, so many, so many insights, so much inspiration, and uh, and so I was always a huge advocate for it. Yeah, uh, and it was not strange that that a lot of Christians didn't feel like TED was um, a good place. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. This is this is the uh, cutting edge of innovation, thought, design, imagination. Yeah, did you enjoy yourself this last week? Uh, well, this week was a little bit uh, tougher for me. I mean, Monterey is beautiful. Us. Well, one, I wasn't feeling great, so okay. I was a little bit sick. But not COVID. Uh, no, not COVID. Thank I, goodness. Right? Well, they, everyone at TED was fully vaccine, uh, vaccinated. Yeah. And we all were tested the moment we got there. Okay. So they were really careful with the protocols and, and really trying to be... Super um, safe. Yeah, super safe. And uh, they were very excited about getting to be back together after a couple of years. He kind of threw a quarantine. little shade. Uh, at, I because he thanked everyone like you, you were telling me a little bit about this well he just basically said i want to thank everyone who had the courage to be here and this there seemed to be that implication there's a lot of people who just chose not to come and they said it was the smallest ted that they'd ever had and so i think there was less than 500 of us there wow but so it's really small and it's really cool I loved yeah i mean who doesn't want a small intimate ted that's kind of amazing that's amazing to be in the room with those people to have conversations to listen to uh, the, the great uh, talks and insights. and uh, But it had been a few years since I'd been to TED. I, I stopped going for three or four years. And and some of it is, uh, I felt like there was a level of redundancy that kind of started hitting it, which right. I think is interesting because once TED made its um, global internet audience, its primary audience, rather than the more private um, local audience, the message messages for me were incredibly diffused. It became more about what what will spread, uh, what will go viral, what, what will go viral rather than what were really the ideas worth spreading. So it's it, it you know because the ideas that become popular, the ideas that go to millions of people, are not necessarily the ideas worth spreading. A lot of times, the ideas worth spreading only goes to a small group of people, the innovators, the early adopters, and the ideas that the early majority loves are usually not the ideas that are the cutting edge. So you can kind of choose. You can either be on the cutting, you can be pioneering or you can be popular, but you can rarely be both. Interesting, interesting. Okay, yeah. so, okay, how would you describe me? <laughs> well, I think you gave up oh, on popularity goodness. and so you're shooting for the pioneering. <laughs> no. Would you say that pioneering is oftentimes unpopular? Um, 
Yes, and that's why I, I think I do think you had an intersection. I think you had an opportunity to be incredibly popular, mm. and and that has a huge appeal, and a magnetism to it. But it also comes at the cost of truly being pioneering. And there's a part of you that's inherently pioneering. Okay. And and every time you started becoming more and more popular, you felt like you were it was at the altar of pioneering and innovating and creating at the at at the edge. And and so I would watch you in that tension, which is so funny to me because you were the one that always criticized me <laughs> and, uh, for uh, sacrificing popularity because I kept insisting on pioneering. Yeah. And you kept saying, Dad, you need to stop pioneering and offending the world and become more mainstream and more popular and have a larger, broader uh, listening audience. Look, I was just trying to reduce <laughs> the amount of panic attacks I have while yeah. sitting listening to you talk. It's true. Well, I mean, the opposite of popular is unpopular. <laughs> and so if your message isn't popular, it's more likely that your message is unpopular. And I think pioneers tend to be um, unpopular with the masses, but popular with those who are looking and searching for the future. Yeah, I, I would say pioneers are oftentimes unloved. And, un, and I think misunderstood, and that's why they're unloved. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because if you say this is the way, what you're not really trying to say your way isn't the way, but it becomes implicit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if the way is a new way, then the old way is no longer the way. <laughs> and which means you're basically saying to everyone who's committed to what is held as obviously true that they're wrong. Right. And so it, it can create a little bit of a dilemma. But you're at an interesting crossroads in your life, in the way that you think, because it is really hard to be both pioneering, innovative, intelligent, and aware mm -hmm. of the old way mm -hmm. when you're in a, a spiritual place yeah it's almost easier in science it feels like because and maybe in science I, mean, I don't know maybe you're breaking an equal rule because when, when you're when you're innovative in in a faith space mm -hmm. you're challenging god that's how it seems yeah. right no we're just challenging how humans interpret god when you, but in science, you have now broken science. But sci it seems, feels like people, scientists are always looking to break science. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if I can put up real quick on my phone. Let me see if I can. But it's a perfect okay. example. Um, I get all my TED updates. I just got one a few minutes ago. And uh, one of the messages or one of the talks that they sent to me, uh, in fact, I think it was the first talk that they released, was about the uh, um, mRNA that was developed uh, to fight COVID. Okay. And I think the first speaker that I heard were the first talk, two talk speakers. Us, just talk us through it. Talk us through it. Well, the the woman who actually developed the mRNA, she was really considered a um, a scientific heretic. Uh, maybe, Brooke, you can find her name. But um, I remember early on when we first dealing with COVID and dealing with the issues of the quarantine, I started hearing about this woman who had developed or had not developed, but had done all this research on the mRNAs and how she was working on this genetic, uh, you know, cellular approach toward fighting viruses. And it was a complete aberration from everything science knows, everything science trusted, everything science was doing. And it, it was only because of the COVID crisis, because of this global pandemic, that her research was even reconsidered. I mean, she really was on the outside. And, and so I was listening to a couple of scientists that were describing why the um, mRNA was having such a difficult time being effective. And they said it's basically a super fragile 
um, vaccine and that they didn't have the right packaging. So the way they explained it was, uh, if you're sending a, a glass uh, vase through UPS, you have to do two things. You have to make sure it has the right address so it gets where it's supposed to go. And you have to make sure it has the right kind of packaging. And they didn't have a bubble wrap for the vaccine. So every time they tried to put it into, um, you know, whether it was an animal or, you know, or human, um, the vaccine would break down and it would be too broken to make a difference or it would go to the wrong place. And so they, they couldn't get to the right place and they couldn't get there um, fully uh, capable of dealing with viruses. And so a whole team of scientists had to surround the work of the mRNA to be able to get the vaccine to do what it's supposed to do. And, and frankly, I was so grateful that she, that they were able to explain things at, at, a, at my level of thinking. And uh, because I, I get UPS and I get getting things broken, I get things going to the wrong address, but it made more sense to me that you have to figure out how to get the vaccine to the right place, do the right thing, you have to get it there um, un, unshattered. Right. At the same time, what really helped me realize was that even with science, the heretics are the one who invent the new way to go forward. Because now this um, approach toward dealing with diseases, which was considered um, not only just unorthodox, but really irresponsible, now will probably be the future in dealing with all major diseases and, um, and probably diseases we thought were uncurable, or we, at least we haven't really succeeded with. And in this moment of invention created the room for innovation, which is a great reminder to me because you see, it's only when you have a crisis that is big enough where, where we become open to innovation, we become open to new ideas. If everything is sort of status quo and everything's working okay, we're really okay with, let's say, 40% effectiveness. You know, you, you can have an old approach, an old strategy, and, and it, it's, it used to be effective at 100%. But the world is changing, the situation is changing, and now it's only effective at 35, 40%. Right. But you're not going to give up on it because you, you're still having 35, 40% success. Right. And here somebody comes along and says, no, you can do it this way. And at first you're going to have 5% success. Right. But I guarantee if you stay with it, you'll end up having 80, 90, 95% success. You're going, well, when, when you get to the 95%, come back and talk to me. But I'm not going to leave my 35% success for a 5% success with a potential of 95. But we don't realize that 35% success is diminishing every year. And it's dropping and dropping and dropping. A lot of people who are against innovation, a lot of people who are fearful of change, stay with an old idea when it's no longer effective. And, and you can look at Blockbuster, perfect example, right? For There was probably a time where Blockbuster was like 80, 90% of the market. They held the market, yeah. And, and, and then, someone coming and saying, hey, I don't know if, you know, uh, VCRs, is that what they, you know? Yeah, VCRs. I don't know if VCRs are the future. All right, well, we can adjust to... It was, to, it was VCR, VHS, and then... Uh, DVDs, DVD. right? Yeah. And then, and, and can you imagine being in the room with Blockbuster going, look, we have the market, we have the audience, we have the, um, the mailing list. Why don't we create Netflix? Why don't, why don't we make the shift? You know that Netflix went to Blockbuster. I did not know that. They went to Blockbuster and and offered to sell to Blockbuster and said, you guys will do brick and mortar mm -hmm. and will be the online streaming side. Mm -hmm. They needed the money um, to do it. And Blockbuster laughed at them and said, no, what are you yeah. talking about? So they went from Blockbuster to Blockbusted because they, they yeah. were willing to hold on to a diminishing return because they were unwilling to, to innovate. To innovate. And, and this is where I think the dramatic difference is. 
um, if you're pressing an idea that's having 80% success rate, right. you're doing a great thing. Yeah. But if you're still holding on to something that once had an 80% success rate, but now has a 25% success rate, and you're um, still holding on thinking, oh, it's going to turn, it's going to turn, rather than asking the question, where is the new innovation that can now have another 80% success rate? Right. And I, I realized this early on in my life because I, I always thought that people who were creative were innovative, and that's not true. Okay. A lot of highly, quote, artistic or creative people are very much against innovation. And what I realized is I, I, I could have people on my team who are highly creative who actually were against innovation. And so can we you, would- can you, can you break that down a bit more, the difference between creativity and innovation and how you see it differently? Because I think, you, right, you, you can be creative and not innovative, but, but can, you, can you kind of break it down in the two different worlds that you're seeing? Sure, I'll use it in the most contemporary like example we have, but maybe I'll use church. All right, um, you, have, you get hit with COVID. Okay. Uh, there's a pandemic. Churches are closing down. Uh, innovating in an old paradigm is, um, let's say, before, right right at the pandemic, you're using um, an organ and a piano. Right? Let's say you're really old school, right? right? And, and so you're going with old school music. You're using hymns. The pandemic hits. No one's showing up. You're going, oh, now we need to innovate and go with acoustic guitars, which was like the 1960s, right? right, and, uh, right. and then, and let's say you even innovate, innovate further. Now you're going to keyboard, which I guess would be the 80s, right, or 90s, and right. and oh, now we're going to go. And, and you could you could change the whole um, expression of how you do worship in a building. But in the pandemic, no one's in a building, and so a lot of creative people will just stay in the structure and go. We need to have cutting edge music, cutting edge edge communication, cutting edge graphics and video. But someone say, hey, that system doesn't work anymore because no one is going to church. No one is going into the building. So you have to go online. And that's where there was a shift where creativity wasn't as important as innovation. You have to, because you have to, you have to be creative in the right innovation. Okay. Does that make sense? So, right. so now we shift over and we're online and now we have to apply creativity there. How do you, and what we did at first, right, is we innovated in a new space, doing it exactly the way it looked like in the old space. And then we looked at it and said, okay, we're not getting the same amount of impact because we have to figure out how do you, how do you create inside this new innovation. And, and, and a part of the change sometimes is that we try to be more creative to squeeze everything we can out of an old idea rather than say, hey, there may be 20% more we could squeeze out of this old idea but it's time to innovate to find a new idea. And, and what I think is really interesting is it can take more work to be less effective with an old idea. It'll take less work to be effective with this new idea. You just have to hold on to it until it actually... I don't uh, agree with you that statement. No, it's, no. It is so much more work with a new idea. So it always is more no, work. I, I'm not saying it's less work. I'm saying it, the, the work produces less outcome. Like what, uh, okay. Re, maybe re yeah, yeah. That. See, when you when you have an old idea, okay, you have to work harder to get any result out of it. Okay, you're saying, yeah, is that what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, maybe an example of that would be when I was a high jumper. Since you know we experienced the Olympics, um, we we all knew the the role, which was a more Russian approach toward the bar. You run to the bar, you uh, and then you kind of roll over the bar, and and we were all um, about the same, the people I was practicing with and jumping with, but I was probably 
maybe the fifth best jumper of, of our group. And then this guy came and taught me the, the Fosbury flop. And instantly I adjusted and I shifted. Everyone else stayed with the roll. I instantly became a better high jumper than all of them. I didn't have more talent suddenly. I didn't have more skill suddenly. I didn't have more physicality suddenly. You did have a new skill. I, well, you I did, did actually. Yes. You had a new skill that was yeah. better. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't as good at the Fosbury as I was going to get. And because I was developing that skill. And at first I wasn't that good because it was terrifying suddenly put, turning my back to the bar. Sounds like a stupid thing. Yeah. And then jumping backwards and, and bending. And the psychology of it is so different than looking at the bar and rolling over it. But because I adjusted to that new technology, that new approach and innovation faster, um, at first I was worse. And then I was better than all of them. Mm. And there they had to work harder to jump an inch higher with the roll while I was increasing five, six, seven inches at a time with the flop. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And that's sense. what happens with innovation is that, 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 that transitional period, it can make you look like you're wrong because everyone else is still having a level of success. Yeah. So the world was still using the roll and going, wait a minute, the best in the world use this approach. What are you thinking? Yeah. And you're going, well, I'm thinking is that there's this one guy <laughs> who's doing it differently than everyone else and it looks really fluid and it looks like you have a greater capacity by doing that. It's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Does it make sense? Uh-huh. And, and so part of the reason I go to things like TED is to keep my mind pliable and open to what are the new innovations? What are new ways of thinking? What are the new approaches? What are the new perspectives? To always try to have new eyes. And, and, uh, and, and part of the reason I think it's really important is because I'm not a botanist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a microbiologist. I'm not a physicist. There's so many things I'm not. So 99% of the people speaking are experts at something I'm not. And I find that my mind becomes more pliable when I understand I'm the novice. And I'm listening to someone's expertise and I'm trying to see a reality through their eyes. Something explodes inside of my brain and then, it's, and then you're able to translate it. And I think this is where the creative process happens when you're able to translate an idea in one domain where they never intended it for another domain. And then you're able to translate it into another domain. And, uh, and, and that's even the idea of like cell replication um, and how that idea became so significant in churches around the world and realizing, oh, wow, the way that the body replicates cells, maybe that's the way that the church could actually replicate small groups. Or um, there, there's so many different ways that you look at like fat cells or one cell that gets larger. And, uh, and a lot of times uh, churches that only focus on what they do on Sunday are just like a fat cell. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but it doesn't replicate itself in a healthy way. And but healthy cells actually have an ability to replicate themselves. And and so that you can learn things from all different kinds of, of fields if you are open really to open your mind um, to transfer the idea to other okay, domains. So say I'm say I have identified that I am not an innovator and that I don't see myself as a creative. Mm-hmm. And what do I do? Who can I look towards? Is it to listen to TEDs? Is it go on YouTube? Who's who are the right people to look to, to, and if this is my this is the tough thing, right? Because I think you can point them in the right direction, but if you right. haven't given them the right tools to receive things, mm -hmm. how do you look at new information in a way? How do you have fresh eyes? How do you can constantly look at new information and pulling out little things here and there? 
Yeah, and you're you're like the uh, consummate toolbox guy. You will figure out how to give people the tools to help them. Yeah, and um, I think not everyone is structured to be a pioneer. No, no, no. I don't even to be a pioneer. Yeah, yeah. They're just they're back in they're back in the <laughs> suburbs, living their best life, you know. But they want to keep relevant. They want to keep moving yeah, forward. Yeah, they yeah. want to try to bring what's going on in front of them to where they're at. Yeah. How do you help them do that? How do you give them new eyes to see? I think first of all, you have to work from actual need. Um, it, it's not innovation for innovation's sake or creativity for creativity's sake. It's asking how do we help people, and. And I, I think one of the most challenging things is to be honest and go, how we're doing this isn't actually helping people. And, and so you have to begin with the actual intention. What are you trying to do? Are you actually trying to see people's lives uh, transformed? You're trying to see people become healthier. You're trying to see more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Whatever your particular outcome goals are, you have, to, you have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself and say, are we accomplishing that? So this is what I would say. If, if you're someone and you're going, okay, look, maybe I'm not an innovator. Maybe I'm not even a creative. Maybe I'm not even interested. But now you've kind of <laughs> opened my eyes that I need to see what is happening in the future. I think oftentimes it is just that. That sometimes and oftentimes we leave our eyes closed. That's right. The future yeah. is right in front of us happening. Yes. And instead of, like, I know the future is Reels and TikTok and all of these XYZ things on social media. I, I, for a long time, tried to keep us out of it because I didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. And then I realized like effect, it was costing us effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that we innovated, but when, once we step into the space, we'll start, we'll start creating and innovating inside that space. So how do you get someone? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is, a, a, this is, a, uh, this happens throughout history time and time again. People used to ride horses and then people started driving cars. People started driving, using gas cars. And now they're driving electric cars. Right, but that's like, a perfect example. Yes. If uh, Henry Ford had done a survey, okay, and asked people, um, "Do you need this this vehicle I'm creating?" They would have said, "No, we need better horses." Right. They would have said, "We need a better carriage." Right. <laughs> you know, innovate how my they horses. Would have said, we need a candle that lasts longer, not electricity. Right. Yeah. And that's why you cannot create the future through consensus. Okay. And when the majority of people agree with you, you're already living in the past. You truly have to <laughs> go into a new lane yeah. to drive a new vehicle. Yeah. So how do you help people create the need inside of a structure that is so stuck in the past? It's, I, I, you know, I did that. Is it possible? I tried to do that. And I think, you know, people talk about transitioning organization. I go, I don't know if you transition organizations. I think you actually have to transition people. You're talking about creativity and innovation. Yeah. So how do I, if I'm someone who, who has a really hard time seeing the future, is there anything I can do to open my eyes to a new reality? Yeah, I mean, there's some practical things. First of all, listen to people that you disagree with. Okay. Like, I mean, we have we, we live in a world of podcasts, okay, right? And I think Battle Ready may be the best. I'm I'm just gonna say that uh, I think Battle Ready is the best thing for you to listen to if you want to learn how to think in an inventive, yeah. and think differently and, and think more in a, in a more innovative way, yeah. Um, because you need to listen to people who are more intrinsically designed that way. Listen to them, even if you don't agree with them, whether it's Sam Harris or you know or um, whoever is out there. I mean, they're they're people that you would, um, yeah, Chris Hutchins. It, I mean. 
you know, but just podcasts. Peter right. Oh, podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you are if you haven't read the Four Horsemen and you believe in God, if you don't read atheists but you believe in God, and you've never read an athe- a book from from an atheist, then I don't know if you really believe in God. <laughs> I think you like I think you like feeling safe. Yeah, but but even terms like that's in the area of thinking like in innovation. If you run a company or if you um, run if you're but it's easier when you run a company. If I own Coke or if I work at Coke, I'm going to go try Pepsi. No, and I but feel really good about myself. Yeah, but the the innovation there would be not um, go taste Pepsi. It's all right. First of all, is Coke still a flavor that people are being drawn to? Right. You, right. You know? right, um, right. Secondly, is it you know does our marketing connect to the generation of people we're now trying to sell Coke to? Right. You know, and um, does our culture um, resonate with the culture of the world around us? You know, and. Um, I was listening to the uh, chief marketing officer for Netflix and uh, she worked for Spike Lee and, and she said, and they were doing the Pepsi commercial. She was the one who recommended Beyonce, who she saw on MTV. And she was not that time the- um, She was still in Destiny's Child. She was just coming out of Destiny's Child. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. no one other than Diana Ross had ever made it out of a girl band like that. And, um, and so everyone else recommended the Spike, the, um, the most obvious popular, you know, um, artists in the world. And then when she recommended Beyonce, it was sort of a fringe recommendation that they went with. And of course, as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and so you have to be paying attention to the things on the fringe, the things that, uh, you need to pay attention to what, what's attracting your 15 year old's attention. You need mm-hmm. to pay attention to the music that, uh, you know, teenagers are listening to. And what are the, who are, who are the, the people that they're listening to? What are the voices that have impact and influence? Um, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you have to certainly understand it. You have to know the frequency which people are communicating with each other. And I think that I've always tried to stay, um, I've always kept my ear to the ground listening to the rumble from a distance to try to figure out what's happening in the world. Okay. So pay attention. So, so listen to people disagree, listen to innovators, uh, read books from innovators and from people who think uh, differently, who um, uh, are divergent in their thinking, um, but also learn how to create a culture where you take small risks. And um, you, you know, when, when I would tell churches all the times is, hey, your youth ministry is the greatest, greatest place to innovate the future of your church. It should be your R&D department. Yeah, and, and the, the, the mistake churches make is that when those kids turn 18 years old, they have to jump into a church that's really irrelevant and boring to them. Yeah. And what they need to do is they need to let the youth ministry permeate all the way through into the adult ministry. And Sunday morning needs to feel and look more like what is really resonating with an 18 to 32 year old. And I mean, that's what television does. They figure out what is that 18 to 36 year old watching? And you know, how do you get their attention? And and remember, whether it's you know WB or NBC or you know HBO, um, they have a lot of different shows, and so the messaging changes for them. Right. But they understand how to get their message to their audience, mm. and and it's the same way uh, in, in whether it's in in the business world when you're trying to figure out how do you market a great idea because if you have a great product but it doesn't resonate with people, they'll never try it. Right. Um, if you have a great product and you have a great message to where it resonates, you're, you're going to have incredible success. See, I love that. 
Okay, you wanted to talk to us a bit about thinking and, and everything you were learning at TED. Can you dive into the next? Well, you know, I, I guess I, I wanted to do a 180 because uh, 20 years ago when I first went to TED, my first experience, I actually cried when it was over because mm. I felt like I found a community where I really belonged. Okay. And, and I felt I had a really difficult time fitting into the Christian world. And, and I felt like the thinking wasn't um, uh, challenging and it wasn't futuristic and, and uh, pioneering. And, and it, felt it's a, it can be a really lonely space. And, and so Ted became, for me, my home away from home. It was a place where I, I felt like I could think and, and, and I felt like I belonged there. Yeah. And now 20 years later, I'm actually like, I'm finding more interesting conversations with people who have faith. Interesting. Than people who do not. And so since I was so hard on Christianity 20 years ago and, and, and just gave a standing ovation to Ted, I kind of want to just have a moment where I give a standing ovation to new thinking in the world um, of faith. And, but do you mean that? Who's innovating? Well, yeah, I don't think it's pastors, but I do think a lot of people who have a faith, people who have a faith. Okay. Yeah. Like I, I think Simon Sinek has a faith. Okay. And he's really thinking and trying and innovating and, and his book leaders eat last is one of my favorites, you know? And, and I think that, you know, he is, I, I think um, Malcolm Gladwell has a faith. His parents, I think were Pentecostal pastors. And What's his most recent, his recent book mistaken for strangers. The Bomber Mafia. No, no, not that one. The one before that. Strangers. Oh, talking to Strangers? Talking to Strangers. One yeah. of the most interesting audiobooks ever of all yeah. time. He spent like six months making the audiobook, like doing it, doing it like a podcast. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, and so I, I do think he, he's definitely faith-informed. Okay. He, he, you know, and his family, his parents were Pentecostal, yeah, I think, pastors or something like that. Okay. And so, no, yeah, I know you pressed against me because I'm really concerned about pastors. Yes. I don't think there's high-level thinking among Christian leaders in, okay. in the world of the church. Right. And, and I shared with you last night that, you know, yeah, I, I feel this. I feel real concerned. Uh, and uh, I'd, like, I'd like to find a way to elevate the thinking of young leaders across the world. And I, I would almost like if I could do one thing with the, the, with the rest of my life is I would like to create a think tank where I uh, help elevate the thinking of people who believe in Jesus. So my question would be this. It's not, it's not for the lack of intelligence among yeah. pastors. No. I think, I think that's the odd thing is that we actually get along with people really, really well. And then when they get on stage, we're questioning where did this come from or who is this person on here? Yeah, no, I've sat with someone going, you are so bright. Why? <laughs> why? why? Why do you settle for this? And, and, and I think to, so that for the average listener going, whether you go to church or don't, I think it's why is it campy? Why do we reduce the level of thinking to cliches, to cliches, to talking about the devil when we talk about Jesus, talking, making, making it almost impossible to bring people who don't know God into the room. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, a yeah. lot of times we, we almost we, we become so comfortable. Like I had this thought. I was like, we, we, I think oftentimes when we are when we start to become inundated and stuck in our own way, we become a creature of habit. Right. So it's yeah. like, how do we kill the creature of habit? You know, and I think oftentimes it's by finding ways like one of the things you always tell me like you do so many you're such a creature of habit I, in so many ways <laughs> yeah. but you always have spaces where you're bringing in introducing new things into your life mm -hmm. you know you always like i drive home a different way every day you always <laughs> talk about that yeah you know what i mean i'm someone who's like find the fastest route <laughs> <laughs> but how do we how does one 
Okay, so so in the spiritual world, how do we elevate our thinking? How do we elevate our thinking, and how does that translate onto a com- a platform to where we're not just saying things people need to hear, but saying saying things people want to hear, but saying things people need to hear? Because like, that's our biggest thing, right? Is, is yeah. we create a space where it becomes more comfortable for Christians than than people who are on a faith journey. We don't even oftentimes I think take into account what what people asking mm-hmm. right the question you always talk about you you create your talks based around the questions your friends are asking or people in your life are asking or maybe you're asking yeah, even the questions i'm asking myself yeah asking yourself you always base it around a question and i think oftentimes in in platforms that we go and visit they're never asking a question they're just giving the answer yeah right yeah and the answer for anyone who is thoughtful falls flat and right and and I, I think that it is a challenge because Christian preaching is a little bit of a, an event. And and especially in the environments you go into that are the most dynamic, you, you kind of like you play for the applause. You, 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 know, you play for the response. But the thing is that if everyone's responding with applause, it means everything you're saying they already believe. So then why are they there? Yeah, and I'm going, I would not travel across the world to speak someplace if I didn't think I had something fresh, unique, and different to say. And, 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 but, and I think, but I think the problem is that if you want to succeed, you have to stay in what is predictable. And, and it, so it actually creates a diminishing return for pioneering. And, and thinking at a high level. So how did we fix it? And why did you fall out of love with Ted? I, I, it's not that I've fallen out of love with Ted. I do, I do think I've been disappointed with the level of thinking do you at f- Ted. Well, the communication was never good. No, and that's the thing. I didn't go to get entertained. See, I, I never went to be entertained. I, I struggled through a lot of uninteresting talks for the brilliant insight. Because you can't expect a you know, whatever, uh, um, you know, my, uh, yeah, yeah, a microbiologist to be scintillating on stage, right, <laughs> you right. know, it's rare. It's super rare. Yeah. What you, what you can expect is I want an insight that I couldn't have gotten without you, you know, and, um, and, and some of them are actually very entertaining, but, but I realized that some of it was the construct. Like the reason I went this year was the theme was optimism. A okay. case for optimism. Okay. And so I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Because the last time I want, went, there was such a, a heaviness, uh, a, a fear of AI, a fear of artificial intelligence, a fear uh, of the environmental catastrophe that is in, uh, uh, impending on, you know, on the world. And, and I, I just had this overwhelming sense of... So it's not just churches that focus on the end times. No, Ted is really focused on the end times. It's very yeah. apocalyptic. It's, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and I felt this overwhelming sense of despair. Okay. And I thought, wow, how is it that the smartest people in the world, the most inventive pioneering people in the world have such little hope? And that's, a, that's what I walked away with four years ago. There was, a, there was a session about hope, right? So this time I go, because it's about optimism, I'm going, well, maybe they've made a turn. Yeah. Right? And, and they did a survey, I think, early on. And uh, Chris Anderson said, um, yeah, I want to do a little survey. Uh, put up a fist if you have zero hope for the future of humanity. Uh, one, if you have a little bit, two, a little bit more. Put a five if you have absolute hope 
in the future of humanity. Just go through. And I thought it was interesting because uh, everyone put their hands up right away. And I, just, I put up a, a, a big five because I am just oozing with hope. And now I know all my friends who are Calvinists are going, what are you talking about? It's all going bad. And my friends who are, you know. The Calvinists don't have friends. <laughs> no. no. All they right. hate each other. Yeah, and uh, no, there's well, I have great people, and um, but Who's but name five. And, all right, no, well, my five for absolute optimism, and I see all these fists and ones and twos and a few threes, and they're up there going ah, I'm amazed by you, amazed by you. I'm going, this room is really pessimistic. They're like applauding. There's they're twos hopeless. and threes, and, and I'm realizing, all right, this is a room of overwhelmingly pessimistic people are really filled with despair or really hopeless about the future of humanity. And then I, uh, I opened up, well, actually your, your mom came up to see me. And so she opens up my Ted book and full page and it says, hope is possible. And I looked at that. Does anyone realize what a depressing statement that is? Hope is possible. <laughs> like, this this is the declaration of optimism in the TED book. And I'm for like, guys. <laughs> I think for science, that was innovative. That was progressive for them. Well, I'm realizing, wow, if you if the best you can do is saying hope is possible, you're pretty hopeless. You know, it's possible. It's not probable. <laughs> and uh, it's possible. You might we might get there. But what we do know is we don't have any right now. See, if hope is possible, that tells me is that you're hopeless. And, uh, right, right, right. You know, and uh, and and so I thought this is a really interesting framework. Hope is possible, and uh, and I'm going no, no. Like hope is essential. See, that's what it should say. Hope is essential. Hope is essential. That human beings cannot live without hope. Right. The moment you begin to exist without hope, you move toward despair and depression and. No wonder we have a culture that's struggling with anxiety and, and panic attacks and, and uh, depression and despair and languishing. And there was a whole talk on languishing that everyone is just sort of like, mm, eh, you know, and that people aren't, um, they're not depressed, but they're just, they're, they're just in a funk. They're in a funk. That's it. That's the word. It's the, they're in a funk. I, they're I think, languishing. I think funk is a way better word than languishing, but yeah. You know, that lack of excitement about life. And I'm going, that's because you don't have hope. You need hope to get up in the morning. You need hope to believe that tomorrow can be better than today, that your life can be better than it is, that you can be better than you are. And and so I thought, here I am, because I, I have such great respect for Ted. And You do it. You're still going to go, probably. I, I love this group. Yeah. yeah. And, and But I'm going, you're the pioneers. You, you're you're, you're the, the, the pace setters of of the of human ethos and culture and you're saying hope is possible rather than you know like we should be saying it's irrepressible hope it's like we are overwhelmed with hope for the world and so then that caused me to do a little more reading in the notebook and and uh, in the opening page it says this i'm going to read this it's quoting david deutsch and this is this is the ted structure the framework for optimism which i think is really important says, optimism is the proposition that all evils are due to a lack of knowledge and that knowledge is attainable by the methods of reason and science. Now, without even dissecting that, that just leaves me so flat. I'm going, really, this is what optimism is. 
And uh, I'm going, wow, this is the most inspiring statement you could put about optimism. Right. So I'm just going to break this down a little bit. First of all, I was, I was impressed that they actually used the word evils. Right. Because I was talking to another one of my friends who right. doesn't believe in evil at all, doesn't believe there's evil or Satan or hell or anything negative. He thinks it's all good. Right. So I thought, well, it's interesting here that they this is a secular humanist kind of environment and uh, a very atheistic culture. And they're actually talking about evils. Now, I don't think they're talking about evil, but but here it is. So optimism is the proposition that all evils are due to lack of knowledge. Now, really, is that optimism? Optimism is the proposition that all evils are due to lack of knowledge. Now, that sounds like something from the 1920s, to be honest with you. Because in the 1920s, we believed that science would was the promise of human evolution, that science would bring a human utopia, that science would finally end violence and war and poverty and bring this um, universal bliss to all mankind until Oppenheimer invented nuclear fusion and then discovered that his invention would kill um, thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands upon uh, hundreds of thousands of people over time. due to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the dropping of the bomb. Oppenheimer later killed himself, never imagining his science would be used for such evil. But what we discovered in World War II was that science, in fact, did not make the world better. It made the world more dangerous. And in many ways, that was the the fragmentation of modernity, where the modern idea that uh, humans would evolve to... um, to a species of peace because ignorance was the problem. But the problem is that um, knowledgeable people are incredibly evil as well. Mm. That knowledge does not eliminate evil. That Osama bin Laden was educated, that Adolf Hitler was educated, that uh, Fidel Castro was educated, that um, to believe that the oppressing class of China and Russia that Putin is not educated and uh, uh, is absurd. Right. And so what we we have enough evidence now over the last hundred years that evils are not due to a lack of knowledge. That in fact, knowledge just makes evil people more evil. Mm. It doesn't make them less evil. And it says then and that knowledge is attainable by the methods of reason and science. This is the worst definition of optimism I have ever heard. Mm -hmm. And I walked away from Ted with this. In fact, I was driving here this morning thinking, Ted is really a reflection of the best intentions that humanists can have. Mm -hmm. That they hope against hope that reason and science will lead us out of the human dilemma of human evil. And, and yet it's, 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 it can only hold that view in an unscientific way because we have unfortunately already had the laboratory experiment, which is called human history. And we invent better weapons. We invent uh, better tools to destroy, uh, each, other. destroy each other. And, 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 and it makes it so interesting to me because if you really believe this, the very same people would saying we need absolute gun control. But I'm going, wait a minute, if, the, if we really believe that, that 
humanity's best future comes from knowledge, isn't the issue not guns, but education? Except the Unabomber was a Harvard graduate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going, wait a minute. Education clearly doesn't eliminate the dilemma of human evils. Fascinating. And I actually think that in many ways, Ted has hit its intellectual ceiling in its ability to solve the human dilemma. And so now I'm going, where will the next innovation, the next iteration of human intelligence and genius come from? And I'm hoping it comes from us, from those who believe that faith can elevate our thinking. Faith should not give us an escape from higher thinking. Faith should actually be the fuel to the highest level of thinking. Mm, that's so good. That's amazing. You take us home. I have so much more I want us to talk about here, and I would love to get some thoughts, comments on this. I would love yeah. um, for us to like dive in deeper in this. And and the only reason I bring up Ted directly is because I have so much respect and I have so much invested years and years of investment yeah. in the Ted community. When you when you pay what you pay to be a part of it, you can talk about. Yeah, it. and for many years I was I not only paid my tuition, I was a donor and yeah. uh, an investor in Ted and. Um, but I think it's also important. I think that's, that's, that is a, a key part of it. You don't pull your investment because it changed its thinking. You, you, keep, you, you are invested because it is thinking. Yes. And hopefully it will reclaim its ability to think at a higher level. Yeah, and I try not to critique anything I'm not committed to. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's an important yeah. part of my own like, life uh, journey. Um, but I do think that this is a moment where we have an opportunity to engage in a conversation that humanity desperately needs. How do we make the world better? Yeah. And, you know, how do humans get better? Right. And, and the same fear of artificial intelligence that I've seen from um, the same TED community, because we're afraid that we're going to create a reflection of us. Because right now, we can't even fix the algorithm of human evil. How are we gonna design an algorithm where robots, if they achieve the highest level of artificial intelligence, if they ever achieve consciousness, we're terrified they'll be like us, hmm. and yet unstoppable. So I think this is a great, great conversation. I think we need to talk about you know, what, what, what is evil? What are, what, where, where does human evils come from? What is our proposition? Is of, there hope? Yeah, w yeah. Where does our optimism come from? Yeah. Is there hope? And um, and how do we translate that into a into the scientific community? I love it. I think we got to continue this conversation. I'm I'm excited about it. Um, thank you for every person who's listening to this podcast, who subscribes, who watches this on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And thank you to the hundred and 40 plus people who um, support this podcast mm. each and every week on Anchor. Thank you guys so much. I am doing a thing. I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a book club for the genius of Jesus. That's and awesome. the link to sign up is going to be in the link tree in the bio of wherever you're listening. So in the YouTube, in the podcast, the Spotify, and on, and most importantly, on in the Instagram. So at already podcast, Instagram, in the bio. It's going to be a little link. You can click it. 
and you'll see uh, that you can sign up for the book club. I'm going to do a book club over, I think, at least the first four chapters of The Genius of Jesus, your new book that comes out September 14th. So to sign up to the book club, the only prerequisite is you have to pre-order the book. So pre-order the book, send it to us, DM it to us, and um, sign up for this thing. And it's going to be fun. I'm excited. Hey, this has been so much fun. Okay. I'm excited. Uh, glad to have you back. I'm glad. Are you feeling a little bit better? Um, I'm working my way back to health. Okay. Well, we'll see you soon. All right. Thank All you, right. buddy. Love All you, right.